welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I'm going to go over the hearing that we had on Monday. We the people versus Google. A lot of people have been asking how it's gone and I want to tell you what I think. And I'm also going to go over pretty much what I wrote up in an article, but I'll be adding some more too in the short video that I'm doing for you. I first want to say that Google or YouTube is censoring the Ninth Circuit. We had almost well, about 900 views the first day when I looked at it last, which is you know a few hours after the hearing. And then I woke up the next day and the views were down to 105 and it still hasn't broken 200. And I have had more clicks from my newsletter, way more clicks from my newsletter directly to the video than the amount of views that they're showing now. So <laughs> you know that they're censoring. I, it's very, very clear. I have the proof. Also, Brighteon shared it, and people were sharing it all day. So likely the initial views that were about 900 when I last looked at it, probably, or when I looked at it that day, those were probably suppressed. And then they realized too many people were watching it, and so they just changed it. So the Ninth Circuit's being censored. Isn't that interesting? This isn't just a censorship. This is changing the facts of what's really going on. And uh, I don't, apparently they can do whatever they want, but that just seems as unethical as it gets, especially since it's uh, an important case for the country, for the citizens. And they just have, that's the kind of disdain they have for Americans and the kind of they just think they're above us. They can do whatever they want, and they have no no morals, and we're watching it on display. But anyways, I am going to air the entire hearing here after I get done explaining some basics, and uh, hopefully we'll get more than 200 views here, and <laughs> we will show them that people are actually interested in this. Okay, first I want to talk about is just kind of this procedural stuff. And I want to say that we are waiting now for an answer from the three judges that were at the Ninth Circuit that heard our case. And typically, well, according to their website, it says it takes three months to a year to get the results. But typically, they take about two and a half to three months. So we'll see how long they take. If we win, likely Google will appeal and they'll ask for an en banc hearing. And basically, that from a legal dictionary, the legal term en banc refers to a hearing of a case by the entire bench or all the judges of a court rather than a panel of selected few judges. En banc sessions are usually reserved for cases of great importance or to review a contested decision of a panel of judges on a matter of particular public importance. So this is that. It's pretty important to the public. And because the Ninth Circuit has so many judges, they have, I think, 30 39 judges, I believe, the Ninth Circuit uh, will be selecting randomly 10 judges to join the chief judge, so they'll have an 11-judge en banc panel. According to the Ninth Circuit, the website has strict reasons for allowing an en banc rehearing, and these are them. Consideration by the full court is necessary to secure or maintain uniformity of the court's decisions, or the proceeding involves a question of exceptional importance, which this does. The opinion directly conflicts with an existing opinion by another court of appeals or the Supreme Court and substantially affects a rule of national application in which there is an overriding need for national uniformity. I think number two, probably because it's an ex of exceptional importance, it's the First Amendment, and they understand this is an important case. 
so Google will probably want to do that. You know, it makes more sense because it's less expensive to just go do an on-bank hearing. But Google will also want to force us to spend as much money as possible and drag this out. They also will want to control the narrative and intimidate us and do everything they can to try to get us to quit. Um, but ultimately, they, they want a favorable hearing, so they're going to try to rehear it. We originally thought that we just appealed directly to the Supreme Court, but because an en banc will be a lot less expensive for us, we might just go straight to en banc two and ask for a rehearing. So we'll see. You know, we just, we're not loaded. We don't have a ton of money. And so we will be trying to be as wise as we can with this. If we get a win, which we should, and I'll talk more about that, then it'll be easier for us to raise money because more media will take, you know, pay attention to this. Right now, it's just as much as we can possibly get with what we have as our audiences and, you know, people that we reach out to and beg people to put us on <laughs> to talk about this because it's so important. Okay, so let's talk about what Google's strategy is because this is really important and this is why you're seeing just all this weird things. Google wants to hide behind Section 230. And so what they're doing, based on what we watched in the oral hearing, is they're doing their best to appear that all the decisions to remove channels and content was 100% of their own doing. They are basically saying there wasn't any coercion or forceful action by the government causing them to remove our channels. And why would they do this? And because if the government was not involved, then Google can hide behind their Section 230 immunity clause or law that is put in place. And this thing, it, based on past court cases, the courts have given them complete immunity. Anybody that tries to challenge 230 gets shot down right away. I mean, we've got to get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has to look at Section 230 and see if it's unconstitutional. But in all the lower courts, in the areas that we'd have to go, which is in San Francisco and the Ninth Circuit, they've shot it down. So for us to even focus on Section 230 makes no sense. And obviously, Section 230 is a problem. We do, it does need to be taken up at the Supreme Court or in Congress because Google has 92% of the global search market. I mean, they're essentially a monopoly, and that immunity clause gives them full immunity to deperson, deplatform any channels, you know, to be able to push any agenda they want by deplatforming us and censoring us. Shadow banning is a big deal too because you just we never come up in searches. But like I said, Section 230 is not our main argument. Our main argument is that Google was coerced, forced, or partnered with the federal government to take down our channels. It thus transformed Google into a state actor acting as the federal government. And that is what we're contending for the most part. We're, we're, we are complaining about Section 230 and we are complaining about our contract claim because they didn't follow their own contract. But our main thing is that they're taking away our First Amendment rights because they have been acting as a state actor for the federal government. And so that's why Google wants to take 100% of the uh, blame because they, once they are shown to be an actor of this federal government, then they no longer can hide behind that immunity clause. Basically, what they're trying to do is say that we are suing the wrong party. We should be suing the federal government and not them. But the problem with that is that Google is the one that in, really did take the stuff down. So they're the ones that we need to be suing because they're the ones that did the action. 
But if we turned around and sued the federal government after Google claimed that it was 100% their decision, the federal government is going to say the same thing, that nothing they did affected Google. It was 100% their decision. And both cases would go away. Even though, and this is what we're saying in court, that it is so obvious that Google was acting as the federal government in their role of censoring huge parts of the internet, not just us and our 17 channels, but our 17 channels is what we're focusing on right now. And it's because of the timeline and the obvious things that they did. For example, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1154, which was calling for censorship of the social media companies. They also subpoenaed the CEOs of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook to appear in front of Congress. And after that, Nancy Pelosi, the most powerful woman ever to be in the federal government, threatened to take away their lifeblood and main reason for their monopolistic power, Section 230, if they did not censor people like us. So there are mounting pressures and there are other mounting pressures as well in government actions, but all of this together created a hostile environment against free speech. And we all saw it, we all witnessed it, we lived through it. So it's really obvious that the federal government was putting this pressure on the social media companies. So for Google to say that they weren't pressured at all is an absolute joke. And we do not have to prove that Google for sure was being pressured and did this because of the federal government. We just have to show that there's enough there that it's a plausible theory so that we can then go and sue them and get discovery as to what really happened. Because at this point, they won't let us do discovery because they just threw out our case because of Section 230, and they didn't even look at the details. So we have a really strong case because we do not have to prove. We just have to show it's a plausible theory. And of course, this is a plausible theory. If they say it's not, then the standard to ever sue under this situation where the government is pressuring uh, in a private party, the standard would be so high that you'd, have, you'd essentially take away the First Amendment. It would be such a poor decision by the judges and by the courts that we would lose our First Amendment right. It's that important. So our strategy has three parts. We simply need to tell the truth and argue the obvious, but it's not super easy to argue the obvious because Google will continue to make arguments, although they'll be really weak, to stray away from the obvious. So the judges really need to have basic discernment. The second is to ask everyone to help us raise the funds to make sure we have the resources to go all the way to the end because we, we really do. It's that important for our country. So we're going to have to keep uh, asking for funds. And it's it's not something I want to keep doing, but I have to. And we're going to go on other shows. We were just on Caravan to Midnight the other night. And um, Zach from Red Pill 78 is going to be going on things. And Zach Voorhees is. And Sean from SGT Report. And uh, we're all working hard. Polly, amazing Polly. She is amazing. She's working hard to raise the money too. But we're all going to have to you know, go on different shows and tap into different audiences. And so while the truth is on our side, it's a uh, pretty grueling process. So the bottom line, if Google and the government censorship operations are not stopped, then Google will have free reign to censor on behalf of powerful interests to achieve whatever agendas they want. And it's what we're seeing now. We have to stop it. And and really, the, the scary thing is, is that Google has complete bubble over the mainstream people. They don't get to see 
other ideas. They don't have freedom of thought is gone because they don't get to see other ideas. They don't get to read different opinions on things. They only are going to be fed what the government narrative is and where they want to shoot people along. So the only people that are going to question things are those of us who are critical thinkers in the first place who don't, who just don't, can't be spoon fed. But the sad part is, is a majority of the people will just stay in that bubble. And it's a threat to our way of life. And it's a threat to democracy. A representative republic can't operate when they have control over the people like that. It's uh, a foundational element for our country that this has to be reversed. And so before going forward, I'm going to talk about a few things that you'll see in the hearing that is going to play. First, I think the judges did their best to make it hard for you to tell what side they're on. I think they did that on purpose. And so that's why they're questioning everything hard. And the other thing is that I want to talk about a weak argument that Google has as an example. They're going to bring up the police officer that for Bantam Books, it was a case where freedom of speech case where the government came up with this list of books. It was a state government of books that they wanted to ban and they brought it to the distributors and the distributors banned them right away because they were worried about the actions the government was going to take. But the person that brought it was a police officer and Google's trying to make the case that a police officer is more threatening and official than Congress passing H.R. 1154, the CEO is being subpoenaed to Congress, and the most powerful woman ever to serve in the federal government threatening to take away 230 if they don't censor is not as big of a deal as a police officer bringing the, the list over. If that's believable to anybody in the audience, then I have a bridge to sell you on the moon. So that's an example of where Google will have weak arguments, but they're going to try to stray away from the obvious and the judges need to have some basic discernment. And hopefully they won't use one of those weak arguments to be able to decide in the way that they want based on some kind of agenda the judge has. And that's what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to look for some kind of weak argument that that maybe an average person might not be able to critically think and go, yeah, that sounds really stupid. And so they'll make their whole argument based on that. And the judges will decide based on that. This is where we have the concern of blackmail, human compromise, the judges being in the back pocket of someone else. It's really a, a big time risk here because obviously we know this is a First Amendment violation. The federal government was involved. I think we're going to be surprised at how much the federal government was involved. When we lift the curtains, the hood off of this thing, and we can see they probably don't want, they're probably destroying documents as we speak right now. And they're going to try to hide everything. But I bet you as we pull the lid off this and we find out what really the government's really doing, people are going to be appalled. It's probably way worse than we even imagine. But just what we can see as it is, we can see that the federal government is involved. And so going forward, just please help us uh, raise money by sharing this. Please talk about it. We, we Please help the narrative not go in the direction of made-up lies because it's really important that for everyone and for everyone in this country that this makes it to the Supreme Court and that this gets turned around because it's too important. Like I said before, the majority of the young people, mainstream young people who use the Internet, they only see what these social media companies want them to see, what Google wants them to see. It's not like us. We're used to watching television and alternative reading newspapers, maybe. I don't know about reading paper, but, you know, going to sites and reading. The young people get everything from their social media. 
And so they have them in their back pocket. And that is worse and scarier. And us older people need to realize how powerful Google is with this control that they have. And I, I think that was the intent all along. And we just got bamboozled. And now we're trying to reel this back in. Okay, so please share this wherever you can. And if you have not donated yet, please donate. It's at givesengo.com slash defending free speech. And here's the oral hearing that happened on Monday, October 17th, 2022 at 930 Pacific time in San Francisco in courtroom one. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, my colleagues, Judge uh, McEwen, Judges McEwen and Judges Van Dyke, we welcome you today. Um, just a few housekeeping things before we start. We actually only have one case on for oral argument this morning, but we have another a number of other cases that we've uh, submitted. Um, I'll call the cases in the order that they're on the calendar. If you are here for oral argument, you have a time designation next to your case. And if you're the appellant, that means your total time. So anytime you wish to reserve for rebuttal, um, then uh, it's your responsibility to keep track of your time. But if you let me know aspirationally what you would like to reserve for rebuttal, I'll try, I'm looking right at the clock, so I'll try to remind you when that time comes. The clock does count down and then it goes up. And just because it's going doesn't mean I really gave you extra time. It means that uh, you went into overtime. But um, if any of my colleagues are asking you questions, please feel free to continue to answer questions as long as the court is asking you questions. But otherwise, try to keep your comments to the time allotted. I realize that you consider the time yours, but we also consider it ours because obviously you would want us to have all our questions answered before we decide your case. So the first matter is Mariano Lopez, Ramos Lopez versus Merrick Garland. 2073233. That's been submitted on the briefs and will be submitted as of this date. The next case is Ganesh Kasiligam versus Stitchfitch 21 16837. That's been submitted on the briefs and will be submitted as of this date. The next case is Gurchechen Singh versus Merrick Garland. 21-70752, submitted on the briefs, will be submitted as of this date. And obviously the last case is Jason Fick versus Facebook, 21-16997. That's submitted on the briefs, will be submitted as of this date. So the case that's on for argument is John Doe versus uh, Google YouTube, 21-16934. Each side has 15 minutes total. So we're ready. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having an argument on this case, Your Honors. May it please the court. I intend to reserve four minutes for rebuttal. Okay, My, do you want to just state your name for I, the record? I was just getting Thank there. You. My name is Chris Armenta. Thank you. May I proceed? Yes, please do. I represent the plaintiffs who are conservative commentators and journalists who for years published their works on YouTube, more than 15,000 videos, almost 800 million views, more than most mainstream media channels. That is until October 15, 2020, when they were summarily erased on that day. We're challenging the district court's order that dismissed the First Amendment complaint. The district court held 
that there was no state action plausibly alleged. She also did not grant leave to amend, and also the decision to decline to take supplemental jurisdiction over the state contract claims. My ninth grader is studying Fahrenheit 451 in English. So I thought I would start with that, which is the case in which Ray Bradbury wrote of a dystopian society in which firemen, instead of putting out fires, they burned books and sometimes the people along with them in the interest of creating conformity and squelching independent thought. In this case, YouTube is the book burner. And it's the government officials and the House of Representatives itself that identified for YouTube which books to burn. The plaintiffs allege that the public officials, through H.R. 1154, specifically identified the speech that plaintiffs had been making for years on YouTube. It was the escalating threats that public officials made out loud. Nancy Pelosi said um, that she would take away, or she would attempt to take away, Section 230 immunity. Um, YouTube hopped to it. And we allege that they did it as a result of both coercion and encouragement. One thing that's kind of weird about this is um, you don't have anything in really in the record about what they took down. I mean, we can track it down, but then it's not really in the record, which seems kind of bizarre to me that you're making us work that hard on that. <laughs> so um, I'm just not sure why there aren't more specific allegations relating to the specific content Fair that's point. at issue here. Fair point, Your Honor. There are a few allegations in the first in the complaint, and I admit, I think we admit in our brief, they could have been much more detailed. Um, part of that reason well, is... Well, we're just kind of human beings. We wonder what sure. we're taking down. Sure, of course. So if you look at um, ER 59... Um, paragraph 8 of the First Amendment complaint does uh, talk about conspiracy theories, talks about content about Hunter Biden in the Ukraine, the ongoing corruption probe, content about social media censorship, um, content about QAnon. That's right in the complaint. It's also some of those are the specific issues that were identified in H.R. 1154. So there's a direct link between what the House of Representatives identified what the plaintiff's content was, and then, curiously, exactly what YouTube put in their blog on October 15th. Well, let me, let me ask you. Let's assume there's all that and more. The question is, does it matter? Because what I think is lacking here, and maybe you can point me to it, I don't see any congressional command. Um, and I don't see anything that links it with YouTube, for example, where it appears that uh, your client's writings um, took place. Do you have any allegation you can make on that other than what you've made? I think, Your Honor, if we decide that Blum and Bantam Books and all the other cases required a congressional demand, then we're really taking the heart out of those cases where the Supreme Court said that encouragement threats, coercion is enough. And so the question really is, is were there threats and encouragement and coercion enough that, as the case law is, that the private action should be fairly attributed to the state? Now, the you have, you have a, well, we have a couple members of Congress, and we know they are not Congress. Right. And I think your clients would probably agree with that. Yes, <laughs> yes of course. So you have a couple of people who um, have made statements. That can't 
be a compulsion, can it? No, it can't. And we saw that in the So what else is there then? Let me explain where the line, where I think the line should be. Because I think it's very important to identify that line, if not in this case, perhaps, if the case comes back. And that's this. We saw in Abu Jamal, Senator Dole didn't like a program that was going up. That wasn't enough. We saw in a case, Elizabeth Warren criticized an Amazon book. That's not enough. Because after all, the legislators do have their own First Amendment rights to say what they think. You know, we see that a lot. And that's absolutely fair game. But But, what is your best case? When you have an S. Bantam Books, 1963. In Bantam Books, a New Jersey commission identified what publications it didn't like. And the publishers decided to um, stop circulating those books. And they did that because they were afraid of some unspecified action that could befall them. It wasn't a mandate. It wasn't, they weren't threatened with anything specific. In this case, by the way, YouTube was threatened with something very specific. They were threatened with the takeaway of the lifeblood of their business, which was the repeal of 230. Now, that alone isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, that that seems kind of, if Congress did that, if Congress got into a debate, which they may well, as you know, and the Supreme mm-hmm. Court has a 230 case pending before it now, right. we would have a different case. But but that's all in the hurly-burly of politics, whether you're for or against or you want to modify 230. There hasn't been any binding congressional action in any way or any pile-on by specific people, correct? That is correct, Your Honor. What you have to look is the combination of forces that caused external pressure on YouTube, as I think Judge Callahan wrote the opinion in UC in Doe versus Regents, where you have a number of forces that create pressure and reaction. So the question is, did the plaintiffs allege that there was enough pressure and the specific identification of the speech in question that YouTube reacted? Well, it's very simple to find that because all you have to do is look at the timeline. The House passed its resolution on October 2nd, 2020. It identified the specific content. The plaintiffs' channels had been up for years, years. YouTube never before identified conspiracy theories, QAnon, Hunter Biden's laptop, or any of those things. And suddenly, they want us to believe that on October 15th, YouTube had this sudden epiphany that they wanted to exercise their First Amendment rights that they hadn't done in years and years and years. The only thing that you can see is that H.R. 1154 that identified that specific speech was passed on October 2nd. The government's not allowed to identify by formal resolution specific speech that it wants social media to take down. I mean, this wouldn't matter if it was a private library or if it's social media. The point is the government, in a formal way, which has been followed up, by the way, by written threats, not only audible threats, but also a writing and an admission by YouTube that it was acting on the censorship issue in partnership. In but, partnership. Okay, but let's assume that what everything that you say is enough for state action. Doesn't that just create a situation where you can hold the government responsible, not necessarily the private actor? Because uh-huh. you're, it, it seems to me that you're alleging that, and if we agreed with you on that, then that would bring the government in. But I don't see any case out there. It seems to me you're asking us to push it even a step further and say, therefore, then the private actor is responsible. Uh, and we are asking that, Your Honor, and that's because but it is, there is... Is that a step further than am I... 
Am I missing something? That is a step, but it's not further than the existing law. So in the cases that we cite in our brief, Collins versus Woman Care, Brunetti versus Humane Society, and even in the courts, the courts said, this court, the Ninth Circuit, that when the private actors essentially act as agents of the state or do the state's bidding, as we contend they've done here, their conduct is transformed into that of the state, and they can be held responsible. I think so, you had a question, Judge. Well, Frank, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just sorry. Building, I stepped building on, on you. On, no, no, building on uh, Judge Callahan's question, that is kind of an odd result, right? Because it, under your theory, Google really, really doesn't want to do this, but they just feel compelled to do it because of the government. So now we're going to, you know, add insult to injury and punish Google because the government made them, you know, tier, under your theory. Under, and I, that just seems like an odd result. It seems like you would punish the government for, for forcing Google to do something, not punish Google for being forced. I, I see what you're saying, Your Honor, um, but I would say that um, that's not necessarily the conclusion. We've pled it in the alternative because until we look under the hood on this, I don't know. Were they acting in partnership, as Susan okay, so Widget tweeted? So let me get that for a second, because that's what I think, I mean, that's what you actually think, and that's what a lot of people think, is that Google actually wants to take this stuff down. Right? Is that Google, you know, you know my, I suppose best case for you, Google's taking this stuff, you know, Google's thankful for the government asking them to do it so they can kind of have a little bit of a reason to do it. But if Google wants to take this down, you have a plausibility standard in motion, at the motion to dismiss stage, right, under Iqbal and Twombly. So why is it not equally plausible? That, I mean, we have other cases that are challenging, you know, it's, it's national news that, that these folks like Google and and Facebook that they are deplatforming as you know deplatforming conservatives. So I mean, why is it not equally or more plausible that Google just wants to take these folks down and wants to do it just before you know you say, well, the timing's suspect here, but it's not suspect. It's right before the election. Well, it's right before the election, and it's right after the passage of HR 1154 that specifically called out that specific kind of speech. So. I don't think it's plausible, even though that's not a defense that was in the pleadings. And again, we have to go. But if that is what Google and these other platforms are doing, I think a lot of people would agree with you that's problematic. But is the fix this, or is the fix some regulations that stop them from stomping on people well, I think and, and regulating content. Until we know the answer, we really have very little for anyone to go ahead and pass a regulation. We all know that many laws and regulations are born out of outcomes and cases. And in this case, I think that the public and we are all entitled to know exactly what happened between the passage of H.R. 1154 and how YouTube so, so suddenly... Can I ask you this? So, on your, around yeah. I just wanna, so I hear what you're saying, but what, how is this lawsuit going to help them? To, are you thinking that if you can get to discovery or something, you can get emails from Nancy, between Nancy Pelosi and the, and the CEO of Google saying, let's do this? Or I mean, know. I think we'll, we'll see what the internal machinations are. For instance, you're talking about things that were up on the news. So last month, Zuckerberg testified that they got um, a directive from the FBI to take down anything related to Hunter Biden's laptop, right? And if you look at H.R. 1154, it's directing the but if, FBI. But if Google didn't want to do this, wouldn't Google's attorney, and we'll hear from her in a second, wouldn't she come up here and say, yeah, we really didn't want to do this either, but we were forced to do it, and you guys would be walking hand in hand? Well, that would be great if this was a summary judgment motion and she was under oath or this was a trial, but she's not. But, you know, the, the other problem is even if the House resolution had some binding impact, which it doesn't, 
it doesn't seem to track your case because what you say well the f b i is directed to do something while the f b i is it encourages them to can strengthen their focus on preventing violence and threats and extremism nothing in here even talks about you tube in the house resolution so i'm i'm seeing this kind of big disconnect between your reliance on the house resolution and what actually it says i think it's important to look at bantam books in that no no we can look at bantam books but first i'd appreciate if you answer my answer my question where in the resolution in the resolution the house specifically identified conspiracy theories in the very first line in the second and on ER 131 identified conspiracy theories in QAnon in other words it identified the specific speech that was the subject of this resolution period okay then they use words about this kind of speech urge condemn encourage and so forth words that are much stronger than the Supreme Court used in Blum then you look at the plaintiff's complaint and they allege that they are the word the publishers of conspiracy theories including conspiracy theories and QAnon and you have then the immediately deplatforming of their content so you have a direct link between the content that's identified in HR 1154 at ER 131 and the allegations made in plaintiff's complaint at paragraph 8 and so that's where you see the link and the interesting thing is the district court sort of mentioned the same thing that there weren't enough facts about the plaintiff's content and identified that that was a lacking of the complaint that there should have been more I'm just assuming that all this that all the QAnon and the disputes over it let's just assume they were alleged I don't see how it changes anything well I guess that is for this court to decide if the court's going to decide that government overreaching and interference into private conduct where there's a clear reaction that they the private company essentially as we allege has done the government's bidding to censor stuff that the government can do directly but they're using YouTube to do for them I mean if the government says that there's going to have to be a command or a regulation I mean then we're creating a precedent for sure because that's not what Blum versus Uretsky said that's not what Bantam said that's not what any of the cases have said that there has to be a command there is no such command of the district court absolutely got it wrong when you look at the precedent I'm going to give you a little time for rebuttal but I need to talk about Bivens before I let you sit down I understand your clients complaint to assert a First Amendment claim under Bivens I've got two questions for you it seems that you've got a couple of cases that are problematic for you and one is Egbert versus Boole or Boole and the other is the Maleska case which appears to foreclose the availability of Bivens in lawsuits against private corporations so let's assume you could assert a Bivens claim why don't those cases cut you off at the knees they both discuss the damages issue they what they're only relative relevant to the damages issue only 
So they addressed whether damages are available, as the court is aware we were seeking injunctive relief as well, and the Bivens only applies to the creation, the judicial creation of the damages remedy. And so those cases said that you can't do that beyond the sort of precise Bivens context. So it might slice out the damages portion, but certainly we wouldn't have the damages sliced out of the uh, supplemental contract claims. Um, and the Bivens, the, the issue with No, but you, you, you need your federal claim that right. you can attach your supplemental contract claim. But if you don't have a legitimate Bivens claim, you don't have anything to attach your contract claim to. And you, you can, you still have your contract claim in state court, right? Of course, there are other remedies, though, like injunctive relief, which is what the plaintiffs were seeking initially, not just damages. So there are are more than one, a single remedy for that First Amendment violation. But what is, what is the Bivens remedy as you understand it? As I understand it, it's a damages remedy only. Right. It's the creation of solely a damages remedy. But so what, if you don't want, if you're not talking about damages, then should we even be addressing your Bivens claim? Uh, we should be addressing the First Amendment claim and so much as they asked for injunctive relief, that was part of the remedy that was requested. But then we're back to the, the coercion and the... Exactly, okay. to the state action issue. Right. That's exactly Thank where we you. end up. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, before I let you sit down, do either of my colleagues have any additional questions? All right, I'm going to give you, you two minutes for a rebuttal. All right, thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the court, Lauren White on behalf of Google and YouTube. Judge Callahan, you asked a question during my colleague's argument, which was even assuming um, the facts construed in the light most favorable to the appellants, uh, wouldn't that only give her a remedy against the government itself? Wouldn't the court have to stretch the state action theory a step farther to, to hold a private company liable? And I. I want to answer that question uh, emphatically, yes, it would. Um, appellants' allegations come nowhere close to meeting the standard necessary to extend the state action doctrine and treat a private party as the government. They allege various facts that my colleague called a combination of forces creating pressure and reaction. but. Their theory finds no analog or support in any of the rare cases that have treated a private party as the government. And as the Supreme Court recently explained in Halleck, quote, the state action doctrine enforces a critical boundary between the government and the individual, and thereby protects a robust sphere of individual liberty. Halleck instructs courts to limit the state action doctrine to its, quote, traditional boundaries. And this court recognized as much in its decision in Prager and in at least two other cases that summarily affirmed uh, state action theories remarkably like this one. Can I, can I ask you a question about what, um, and I guess I'm not familiar with all the cases and what they, you know, what they say on this as far as when the government's acting through a private actor. But if you have a situation where the government says, you know, even come a command, like let's say if you had a situation, which question whether that's in this, here in this case, but says do this, 
and the private actor says thank you we've been wanting to do that and so they they do it is that what what is that in that circumstance do you have a you know the government act could you say it's the government acting or do you say it's a private actor this acting or is it both so your honor i reviewed a lot of cases as i'm sure my colleague has as well and and there there are no cases finding state action against a private party under circumstances like that the case that she that mr mentor really focused on is bantam books what is your response to her argument on that so bantam books involved a state commission that issued a report identifying specific publications that it wanted booksellers to revoke from sale that report was delivered by police officers by government officials with authority to enforce law there is no alleged source of government power in this case with the power or authority to enforce law and as can i ask you a question about these bantam books so that sounds pretty strong arming you know those facts then the next question though is is i'm kind of getting at after that if you have this strong arm what you might call strong arm tactics by the government but it turns out bantam books you know issued something saying we really want to we really want to remove these books anyway is that what what happened in bantam books was there anything like that where bantam books was was saying we want to do this anyway we're not doing this because the government's making us do it not that i'm aware of your honor and you're and you're as i understand it your position here is we wanted to we want to do this like we're not doing this because the government made us do it we want to do it we wanted to remove these people so it is true your honor that youtube in this circumstance exercised its discretion as even appellants admit on er 74 they allege expressly that youtube exercised its discretion and applied its own content policies in making the decision to remove appellants channels that is true but even crediting her theory that it made those decisions based on some political pressure exerted by nancy pelosi and adam schiff and the house of representatives that those government actors do not bring the authority of the government itself so they don't have the power to coerce on behalf of the federal government and second if she if she were to concede that youtube made this decision independently that that would be an instance of youtube exercising its own rights under the terms of service where it has no obligation to host content and reserves the right to remove content and its rights under the first amendment to decide let me ask you this then let's just accept as true for the moment that appellants allegation that youtube discriminates against conservative content let's accept that as true is there any remedy for such discrimination particularly given youtube's dominant market position absolutely your honor appellants asserted a breach of contract claim in this case appellants in similar cases alleging theories similar to this one have asserted all sorts of other common law claims and tort and contract those remedies are available to appellants as their own as the procedural history in this case demonstrates but the first amendment binds the government it doesn't bind private parties only in very limited exceptions can it be extended and this is simply not one of them and it doesn't come close so could there be a congressional fix to this problem if congress for some reason thought that 
platforms such as you tube and google were discriminating against conservative viewpoints i would agree that that would be a better approach perhaps not one that you would like but but not but uh but uh i mean while we're talking about it you're telling us basically that we're trying to script you know fit a square peg into a round hole with the first amendment here but uh if there's a problem what would be the fixes to that what what are the options if someone that has this kind of market power is just picking on conservative people well multiple states have attempted to pass legislation to address this problem the supreme court likely is going to be addressing the constitutionality and legality of those legislative attempts this term so i think we'll have an answer very soon but at least those states have attempted a legislative fix and and certainly if if the concern here um as as appellants argue is that there's there's certain uh, political pressure um the representative branches of government are free to express opinions about public policy this court recognized as much in american family association uh, which upheld the the right of the city of san francisco to condemn very specific political advertisements and to uh, pressure uh, publications and uh, news media not to broadcast very specific advertisements because but, those... but e you know even if Congress were to repeal 230 and the immunity or safe harbor uh, that internet service providers and other platforms have would that fix this First Amendment problem where they say that the company is discriminating against a certain viewpoint. They they really have a first some nature of a first amendment claim. How would Congress fix that? It's a difficult it's a difficult question, your honor, as I I think the the inability of Congress to pass any joint resolution um demonstrates. I mean, even in this case we're talking about a resolution on behalf of a single chamber of Congress. It, it wasn't a joint resolution. It, it wasn't Congress as a whole uh, expressing some concern about the political perspectives of YouTube or well, any so, other. So, I mean, your position here is basically you're doing what you're doing because that's what you want to do, and no, the government isn't making you do it. Well, uh, on a Rule 12 motion your honor we we have to accept the facts as alleged as true and and here the facts as alleged are that youtube made this decision because it was bowing to political pressure from a few individuals and the house of representatives um the, there's a, this alternative theory that that youtube was acting jointly with the government although that theory is not really supported by any specific factual allegations. Did the district court consider the anonymous employee declaration characterizing the content of appellant's videos as part of its 12B6 analysis, and if so, was that appropriate? She did not, Your Honor, uh, and, and appellants recognize as much on page 9 of their brief, footnote 1. Um, the district court did cite the anonymous declaration in her order on the on appellant's emergency TRO application. 
Um, but even there, the site was merely a C also. She did not appear to rely on the substance of the declaration in denying the temporary restraining order. But she certainly did not consider it in connection with the motion Can to dismiss. Can you talk to me about Bivens and Egbert? Absolutely, Your Honor. Um, there is no cause for extending uh, the Bivens remedy here. The Supreme Court has been clear that the state action doctrine should not be expanded beyond its traditional boundaries. I would argue that the Supreme Court has been even clearer that court should not extend the Bivens remedy beyond its traditional boundaries, and, and in particular should not extend the remedy to new causes of action, such as alleged deprivations of First Amendment right, or to new categories of defendants, including private companies. We've looked, we looked mostly at Bivens, of course, as a damages issue and series of recent Supreme Court cases which have con now constricted that. But I think the, the plaintiffs here say, well, we, we don't, even if we were to forego damages, what we really want is an injunction or maybe an affirmative injunction to put things back up onto the web. Is that really a Bivens claim or are you right back into the state action soup? So it, the case law is not exactly clear, Your Honor, on whether a, a party can bring a First Amendment claim untethered to a right of action like Section 90, 1983 in the state context or Bivens in the federal context. I think appellants are very clear in their brief that they intend to proceed under Bivens, and their complaint also uh, seeks a claim for damages um, on ER 74. Um, but, but even putting it aside and assuming that they're not intending to proceed under Bivens and they're asserting sort of an abstract First Amendment claim and seeking solely injunctive relief, then their theory runs headlong into the problem this court recognized in Carlin Communications. And there, the court held that the private telephone company was a state actor in that circumstance. And that was a public utility, and it was bowing to pressure from a government agent with authority to enforce laws, the county attorney in Arizona. Um, but, but putting that aside, even assuming, even finding that the telephone company was a state actor, on remand, the court specifically held that the telephone company was free to decide what it wanted to do with the, the speech that the county attorney had allegedly uh, pressured the telephone company to remove. Um, this court, under the First Amendment, cannot uh, command a private company like YouTube and dictate what it must and must not host. It has its own uh, content policies and reserves its right to exercise discretion over how to apply and interpret those policies. and how to identify specific videos and channels that fall inside or outside the line of those policies. So, do you agree, you know, there was a question to your opponent about um, if, uh, uh, if, you, if you punish, you know, is it appropriate to punish the, the private entity if it really is the government strong-arming them? And do you agree, though, that I guess, I think, your opponent's view is, well, the case law, that's the way it works. If, of course, this is assuming that the government actually was strong-arming, strong and so let's just assume for a second that there was a First Amendment violation here. Is it, what, you know, what do the cases say about, do we punish, it seems like you'd punish the government, but do the cases say, well, we're going to punish the company 
This court's case in Sutton speaks directly to that issue, Your Honor. And that court recognizes, doing a very detailed survey of state action cases, that the Supreme Court has never found a private party liable as a state actor under a coercion theory, and that that makes sense for exactly the reason that Your Honor recognized. What would the remedy be then? Is it an injunction against the federal government or something? There may be a claim against the government if the government is regulating in an area where it does not have the constitutional power to regulate. There may well be a First Amendment claim against the government. Here we're not, again, talking about actual regulation or even a command with respect to specific content. And I'd like to point out my colleague repeatedly commented that the House resolution identified specific content, but it really didn't. It refers to QAnon and to conspiracy theories, but at the same time it recognizes the harm associated with extreme ideologies from the far left and the far right. It's very general, and it purports to encourage certain federal officers to take action, and it also encourages all Americans. It's a resolution of general application. Does it address social media? I thought it was also told social media to do something. It does not, Your Honor. It acknowledges that certain social media companies have already taken action, but it does not urge social media or any private companies to take any specific action with respect to speech. Judge Kline, we've gone over. Can I ask a question? Yes, please do. So, you know, I think earlier you talked about, like, there's maybe two paradigmatic examples. There's the most paradigmatic example of state action through a private entity, which would be a government gun to the head of the private entity saying, say this or something, right? That would be, and so, but then you also mentioned, just put that aside, you also mentioned the idea of working together, coordinating, and that's sort of more the concept where I guess the private entity actually agrees with the government's position, and you don't have to, the government doesn't have to hold a gun. Maybe they encourage them, but in that circumstance where you have a private entity that really wants to do something and you have the government encouraging them to do something, what does the case law say about, because it seems to me like the government's involvement at that point, that one could argue at least that the government is sort of superfluous, right? The private entity, other than, I suppose, providing sort of some cover. I don't, you know, you could call it cover, but I'm trying to figure out where the, what is the First Amendment, you know, what work is the First Amendment doing in that? Just saying the government's saying, good work, Google, we really like what you're doing. Does that somehow turn private action into government action? What do the cases say about that working together type of aspect of? So, Your Honor, I think if the allegations are that the government was superfluous, then by definition the government could not be inextricably intertwined. That's what I'm asking is, is it superfluous when the government comes in and says keep doing it? I mean, if I'm doing something and the government's, look over my shoulder and the government's giving me a thumbs up, I suppose it encourages me to do it more, but like I'm trying to figure out, you know, how much, does the government still have to threaten in that context? Does it have to be a threat in that context or can it just be, is government encouragement plus private action enough to give rise under the case law to like a, to a state action First Amendment problem in the private context? It's not, Your Honor, and we concede that Blum uses the word encourage, but this court in Roberts also recognized the need not to stretch the encouragement test too far. And in order 
for a party to be. So is your view, just to be clear, I don't want to take you over to, your view is that in that sort of circumstance, that would never, that would never be, even if the government's super encouraging and Google's super excited about doing the thing that the government's just, as long as Google is super excited or wants to do the thing that the government's super encouraging them to do, that's not, that doesn't implicate the, the state action First Amendment doctrine? So no case has ever held a private party liable as a state actor under circumstances anything like that. Okay. And given the Supreme Court's guidance to limit the state action doctrine to its traditional boundaries, this court would have to extend the doctrine farther than it has ever been extended to accept their theory. Well, um, following up on Judge Van Dyke's line of inquiry, we had ruled in Prager versus Google that the public function theory was out, and it seemed to me that the plaintiffs here have now foregone that. But my question is whether this combination of a nexus and compulsion is just another way of restating a public function theory. It, it, it's an interesting observation, Your Honor. I, I, that crossed my mind as well. Uh, there, certainly, um, my colleague has referenced the market power of YouTube as as part of her general theory. Um, the, the problem is she doesn't seem to take issue with the fact that YouTube has content policies and then it doesn't allow certain constitutionally protected speech on its platform, for example, pornography. Uh, according to my colleague, the problem only arises where a government official expresses some opinion about a specific type or category of constitutionally protected speech. And in that scenario, the private party loses its ability to exercise its discretion and remove speech simply because a government official um, agrees with or supports the decision. And, and that, that would, that would uh, eliminate the power of the representative branch of government to express public policy uh, opinions, uh, in addition to removing the rights of, of private parties to to control the content on their platforms and in, and create the types of communities that they want to create. There's okay. nothing for, further. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now I'll give you two minutes for rebuttal. So that kind of about basically evens you up. You both got a little more questioning than uh, that's the good thing about submitting cases. We like a fair We're laser focused on you. Uh, yes, Your Honor. As to uh, Judge Van Dyke's question, when does encouragement um, become a constitutional issue? The cases are really clear. It's when the choice of the private party is removed. When it's such significant encouragement that the choice is said to be that of the state not of the private party, which is what the plaintiffs alleged here, based on the sequence and the timing of events. Counsel, were, how do we, I mean, so if that's the case, uh, if, if you have, the, you know, I, I think you're, you would probably agree that Google wants to remove these things too. So, you know, if, I, I guess that's the. I don't, I don't, Your Honor. I don't, because if they had wanted to remove them, my clients are making them a lot of money. If they had wanted to remove them, they would have removed them over the 10 years prior to the passage of except H.R. For, except for they, they wanted to make the money and affect the election would be in theory, right? So And so make all the money until then just pop right then. I, I don't, I mean, that's the reason that we can speculate may have been. What we know are the facts, the timing, and under 12b6 rules, there's a plausible inference that it was a reaction based on the sequence of events that occurred. 
That's what we're trying to get to here. There's a very distinctive sequence of events. I mean, the, maybe they wanted to do it themselves, then you know what, let me see an internal memo that says that. Or maybe what we're going to see is a directive from the House of Representatives or the FBI identifying my client's channels and asking them to take it down between October 2nd and October 15th. I don't know the answer. But what I do feel is that we have enough for a plausible theory that it was a reaction. And the issue, um, Judge McKeown, is it a back way into the public function theory? I don't think so. I mean, Prager really foreclosed that until there's a solution at the Supreme Court or Congress level. I don't think we're going to see a change in that in this circuit. The issue is not whether it's a public function. The issue is the overreach of the government in identifying specific First Amendment content and placing enough pressure, as the plaintiffs have alleged, on a private party. It can happen with private libraries. It can happen in a, in a lift ride. It can happen anywhere. And if we let it start to happen here, let the government overreach, let them make threats, let them make pressure, and then pass in a formal House resolution identification of the content, and the private party hops to it, and so close in time that the answer is really obvious there, we're going to start to chip away at the First Amendment. And I think that's the biggest concern of my clients. Not so much the Bivens damage claim, because if you look at the record, we also, that, that claim, First Amendment, didn't even ask for damages. It really asked for injunctive relief and declaratory relief. The issue is, what are we doing at the First Amendment here? That's the real issue, and that's my client's interest in this case. Not necessarily in winning, but in making good law and making right law. Well, I think you've both done an excellent job of uh, answering our questions and uh, focusing us on the issues. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, this will conclude the calendar for today and will be in recess until tomorrow at 9.30. I think I just...